Well, last week, if you tuned in, you would have heard the lauded Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor warn us against the dangers of fraying democracy in a secular world with more and more people, especially in the West, turning away from faiths. What do we agree upon? It also raises questions about identity and whether we can all live in peace with all of our differences. This is part two of my conversation with Charles Taylor. One of the things that you raise, Professor Taylor, is the question of identity. And that seems to be increasingly to the forefront within liberal democracies, but elsewhere as well. What is the sense of identity in our world that people are seeking meaning and often in an exclusionary sense, me against someone else, us versus them, identity that grows out of grievance and can often sit at the heart of so much of the conflict in our world. Where does this come from? How does this fit into your malaise of modernity? This is a very interesting new use of the word identity. If you tried to speak to somebody a century ago mm. about identity in our presence, they wouldn't have understood you. This is political identity, isn't it? Not only political identity, it's, it can be personal identity, that sense of identity. I think what this covers is what would be called, let's say, 100 years ago, the fundamental commitments that I have, right? And everybody has such fundamental commitments by which they judge other possible issues that arise for them. It could be a religious one, it could be an atheist one, it could be to do with one's society, one's polity, and so on. Things that are really, really fundamental to me and that I use as a criterion to understand where I want to go when I have the different choices in life. Now, the fact of beginning to use the word identity for that meant a kind of subtle change in the whole idea of what my fundamental beliefs are. The idea is that I have some say, I think it out. It's something that's personally worked out for me. It's not just given to me from mm. outside. Well, it's the buffered self, isn't it, that you've talked about, the master of their domain, the person that does not want to allow themselves the invulnerabilities. It's no longer porous and open to others. I don't think that's it, because on the contrary, the desire of people who have this kind of identity is for recognition. Desire mm. is for them to be accepted, right? And if they're not accepted, if this is refused them, they feel a, precisely a profound malaise. So it's really something that only can arise among not buffered but porous cells, if you like, to that extent porous. But it is a kind of reliance on others. You can't bring a kid up, right, denying all the time their fundamental intuitions about what they want to do. It is, Professor Taylor, a desire for recognition, that's true. But it also comes from a rejection of something too, isn't it? It is often a, a source of recognition for something that was lost. I know you've talked about the importance of ontology, the stories we tell. The stories that we often tell in our world today are a story of the wound, the humiliation, the loss. We see this played out in Vladimir Putin's Russia, where he talks about the collapse of the Soviet Union as the great catastrophe of the, the 20th century. He sees his war in Ukraine as a war of identity, doesn't he? Whether is China and talking about the hundred years of humiliation. It is seeking recognition, but it also comes from a sense of wanting to withdraw or, or respond to something, a rejection almost of modernity, secularism, and, and what the West represents. 
yeah, you can have an identity built on that, on a rejection of the other, but that that's not necessarily the case. Let's look at cases where identity has had a tremendously positive effect. And let's look at the victim of the present Putin mm. offensive, namely Ukraine. I mean, I first visited Ukraine in 91, when they were just after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I was struck by how divided it was then between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers and how much suspicion there was. And yet they built, partly because of this pressure from Russia, they responded by the development of Ukrainian identity, of mutual recognition. So it's not always an issue of exclusion. It sometimes is, but the great moments are the moments when people develop a common identity which really speaks to their individual identities. And they, they do that because they build it together. And this is something quite remarkable and quite inspiring. Just coming to that source of conflict and the tension that exists in our world, and I'm just wanting to get your thoughts on what will define this age. What is the future of a liberal, secular, a democratic West, where, as you pointed out, there is often a, a sense of emptiness, alienation. You've described a terrifying emptiness vis-a-vis the rise of authoritarian states, China, Russia, that talk about a sense of purpose, stability, as they would see it. In this tussle right now, who has the upper hand? Who is more likely to prevail? Can the West regather itself, find its strength from this malaise, or is authoritarianism a viable alternative? Well, it's not a viable alternative everywhere. That's the first thing to say, that outside certain uh, societies that seem to have, a, at the moment, a total control, and even they, not necessarily always, authoritarianism will always breed enemies, will always breed dissatisfaction. So that certainly isn't a stable solution. But maybe we haven't got a stable solution either. And where would it come from? Well, I'll tell you where it could come from. If you look at a lot of young people today, it's very interesting because unlike their elders, they don't see difference in identity as a threat. They see difference in identity as an opportunity, as a possibility. They feel enriched by associating with people of very different backgrounds and different outlooks. And that sense of enrichment makes them on the contrary, passionate supporters of this kind of, mm-hmm. if you like, diverse democracy. So I'm thinking of the, the murder of George Floyd, that the Black Lives Matter movements that obviously that stirred up right away were different from the earlier ones because in the demonstrations, there were a lot of non-Blacks supporting the idea of Black Lives Matter. And if you go to the younger generation in the United States or in Canada, for that matter, you see that there's a possibility of a way out of all this in the very outlook of younger people that feel like diversity is a source of enrichment, not a source of danger. If we can tap those feelings, those reactions among younger people, if we can hang in long enough enough, there's a possible way out here. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is, the possible way out, but it's a direction in which our politics can go. And Professor Taylor, I wanted to finish where we began, really, and that is around the idea of faith, the idea of God, of religion in this world. You are a person of faith and someone who who wrestles with that and, and its role in our world. If we're looking for a revival in the West, strengthening of those social bonds, 
What role does religion have in that? What role does it have in the public space? Do the rights of religion have to be protected in that public space? The point is that we're now in a situation where not just religious forms of spiritual growth, but any form needs that kind of protection. It needs a protection against discrimination. It's being identified as something which is dangerous and unacceptable and so on. So they all need that kind of protection. But you could imagine that these different paths, some obviously re- religious, some not so obviously religious or, or religion-like, could come together in a sense of having a common purpose, a common ethic. It's exactly what happened in the Ukrainian case. Again, if you like, taking the fact that there are churches connected to the Catholic Church in Ukraine, there are churches connected to the Moscow Patriarchate, to the Patriarchate in Constantinople, and so on. So there were all these differences within Ukraine before, too. And they, they exist still, but they have a sense of common task to build a really civilized, open, equal society together. So religions are going to play a very, very important role in this, either in the good direction or in the bad direction, the way mm. Putin is uh, you know, leading the Russian Orthodox Church or Kirill, the present patriarch, incidentally with the condemnation of all the other Orthodox churches in the world. But nevertheless, they can play a very destructive role but they can play a very positive role. Indeed, positive role is indispensable if we're going to get through this difficult period. Charles Taylor, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. And you can catch part one of my discussion with Charles Taylor, renowned philosopher, emeritus professor at McGill University in Canada, on our website. And that's it for the Religion and Ethics Report for this week. I'm Stan Grant. I want to thank Hong Jung and Simon Branthwaite. And you can catch us again next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.